What makes the Toyota Corolla self-charging hybrid Ireland's favourite hybrid? It's time to find out. Choose the spacious Corolla Saloon, the iconic hatchback or the stunning touring sports. With incredible offers available and lower tax than diesel, now's the time to join the thousands of hybrid drivers who have made Toyota Ireland's best-selling car brand in 2021. Contact your dealer or try out our virtual tools at toyota.ie and start your electric journey today. Toyota. Built for a better world. Terms and conditions apply. Claim applies up to March 2021. Welcome to Pod's Own Country, the Yorkshire Post political podcast. I'm Jerry Scott, the Yorkshire Post Westminster correspondent, and this week I've got a really exciting interview for you. It's uh, David Blunkett, Lord Blunkett now, um, who I'm sure you are all aware of. But just to give you a bit of background, um, David Blunkett represented the Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, which is a long time, right? Through to 2015. Um, you'll know him as being in Tony Blair's cabinet. He was Work and Pension Secretary, Home Secretary, Education and Employment Secretary. And of course, we do also know him because he's blind and has never, ever let that get in his um, in his way of his political career. Now, he's now in the Lords um, and has lots of views on not only how this government is performing, but really what Labour needs to do to become a party that's electable again. Um, so let's hear what he has to say. Hi David, thank you so much for coming on Pod Zone Country. It's really good to have you with us. You're very welcome. So, look, this has been a crazy year and I guess to begin with, what have you been doing this year during the lockdown and the pandemic? A lot of work, I imagine. Well, I've been struggling to keep business as usual, which has not been easy. No. I mean, not just because... I got things I really wanted to do, but because I knew that I needed to keep the structure. If I'd just given in and said, well, okay, you know, I reached a time of life where I don't have to do these things anymore, I think probably within two years I'd be a goner because it's work, it's commitment, it's keeping busy that actually keeps me alive. Mm, no, absolutely. And you're not the only one. People, so many people have struggled, haven't they, with being, you know, either stuck at home or not being able to kind of do those things. And I think it's been a real, it has been a struggle for a lot of people across the country. Well, in one sense, I've been lucky. I mean, there are things that I was doing that I've not been able to do because the areas of work were hit so hard. I was doing some advice to uh, EasyJet about uh, passengers with special needs. Well, they're in complete meltdown. I was advising Heathrow about skills and employment for the future they're in meltdown so there's a couple of things that I was doing outside the House of Lords uh, but I've kept busy with my interest and commitment in education and I've done everything I can to firstly stay in touch with the Lords when we were on wholly online and mm. now we're in what's called hybrid where we're partly in and partly online I've been trying to come in as much as I could uh, because again I'm much easier and happier with being there in person. You can't use irony and you can't crack a joke, I've found, uh, into the into the Lords online. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't work coming over the speakers. And in any case, I'm hopeless at the technology. <laughs> oh, I think quite a few people have struggled with the technology, me, me included. But yes, I quite agree with you. It's nice to be able to 
have a chat in person, socially distanced, of course, but yeah. you know, and and get that human connection again. I We're only agree. around thirty in at a time, which is not very many, and mm. therefore there's no atmosphere. Um, but at least, as you say, you you can have some interaction at a distance, and you can make your presence felt. So I've been trying to do that whenever it's been appropriate, and we've set up a grand committee as as well as the chamber, so that we could do things in there with plastic bubbles in which we sit at a desk <laughs> and uh, we have hand sanitizer on the desk so uh, people have been doing their best to be really careful. I've seen those bubbles they look slightly dystopian but we we cope, we cope yeah. where we can. Um, so Nick I thought it would be really nice to have a chat today and talk about your well illustrious career in politics because it's been it's been a long old career really hasn't it? Um, well, if I if I dwelled on how long, <laughs> I'd be. I mean, it's it's over fifty years now since I was elected to Sheffield City Council and became, if you like, in the in the public arena, in the public sense, uh, involved both with public service and with elected office. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I left the elected office in two thousand and fifteen, and came into the House of Lords that autumn. Mm -hmm. And I keep having to remind myself. I've got a job to do here, and it has a really critical role. For instance, in the uh, latter throes of the uh, arm wrestling with Brussels, mm. had the House of Lords not thrown the, um, the controversial clauses of the Implementation Bill out, then that would not have gone back to the Commons, and there would not have been the kind of delay that allowed the government to adjust. So we have a role. But we've got to keep reminding ourselves we're not elected, so we, we, we've got to be very careful how much we challenge compared with how much we seek to revise and to raise issues. What an interesting balance, because I think sometimes the Lords does get, you know, criticised for, for criticising our government, if you will, but that is, like you say, your role, to act as that balancing chamber. And we know that the Commons have the primacy and the last word and at the moment with a very very substantial majority theoretically mm. a majority of 80 but actually because the opposition is split between the SNP uh, Labour the, and, and the Lib Dems and, and one or two other um, minor parties because that's split the government have got an overwhelming majority and they can overturn anything that we do but we, we believe we have the right to say would you like to think of it again? In fact, the first vote I ever did in the Lords was on tax credits, and we put it back. It was quite controversial because we no normally don't overturn anything that's to do with finance. But this wasn't a finance measure, it was a welfare measure. Uh, okay. Uh, they were taking away child trust fund, uh, child credits from around 3 million people in work. It was an in work credit. Mm -hmm. And we put it back, and the Chancellor of the Exchequer at the time, George Osborne, eventually, under pressure from his own side as well, gave way. So that was a win yeah. uh, when the government had actually thought again. Yeah. Uh, so you do get some wins, that's yeah. good to know, <laughs> absolutely. So you mentioned, speaking there, that it was, yeah, what, 50 years ago when you were first elected as a councillor. At the time, I don't think anymore, we were talking before, at the time you were the youngest councillor in the country, weren't you? Yes, it's not unusual now for somebody of 22 to be a councillor, but it was um, unheard of. I think I was 
the the youngest by over 20 years in, in Sheffield at the time. <laughs> wow. um, and a bit bumptious and a bit full of myself <laughs> and a bit unusual in the sense that I couldn't see and they were concerned. How's this young man who's got a high opinion of himself? How's he, how's he going to uh, manage as well as how are we going to put up with the fact that he thinks we're old fogies and he knows best? <laughs> It's yeah. funny because I was actually speaking to um, a young man uh, in Yorkshire just the other day. He's just become a town councillor and he, I think he's, he's in his very early 20s, one of the youngest. And he was saying, do you know what? I would love to see more younger people get involved in local politics. It's a great starting point. Do you think, still feel that getting into local politics is a way to maybe cut your teeth to get into national politics? I think it's twofold. It's right in its own terms. Mm -hmm. So if you go on the council... You should go on the council because you want to be there to do good at that level. You shouldn't just see it as stepping stone. But, of course, you do get the experience. You get the wherewithal to, to learn about how politics is done because statescraft, actually being able to find a way forward to persuade others of your opinion to, to get things through is, is crucial. Otherwise, why would you want to be there? So learning how to do it is very good at local level. And it also roots you in community and you know some people do forget where they came from but actually it's a good grounding in the hope that you won't forget where you came mm -hmm. from and if you're in Westminster you won't get caught up in a very different kind of bubble to the one that we've been uh, talking about <laughs> during Covid. No absolutely absolutely I think I um, read a previous interview with you when, where you said when you were a councillor you were kind of because you were at university as well weren't you you were learning the theory during the day and then putting it into practice at council meetings. <laughs> yes I was slightly <laughs> delayed going to university because I, I had got no qualifications at 16 the school for the blind I went to didn't do public exams mm. so I went to evening class and when I got a job they let me have day release to college and I got the qualifications to get to university. So I'd, I, I was actually studying political theory in institutions at the same time as being on the council, which was a, a very good mix. I imagine it was. I imagine it was because, I don't know, I suppose if you were older maybe, you might have forgotten those roots, I suppose, where the political theory comes from and what you're actually drawing on in the day-to-day -day life. Well, I think it helped. I mean, th they certainly didn't want me to be spouting political philosophy <laughs> in our meetings yeah I think uh, I, I had to be a bit circumspect uh, about that but it did stand me in very good stead as it, as it you know quite clearly did when I became leader of the council in 1980 and then entered parliament and I was already on the Labour Party's National Executive Committee I'd been uh, elected by the membership and therefore I got a little bit of a feel of what was happening on the national scene and the decision was taken by Neil Kinnock, who was then the leader, to put me on the front bench fairly quickly. This wasn't because he'd spotted a great talent. It was because he'd spotted a potential thorn in the side. <laughs> and the best way, and it's been true in industry, of getting rid of somebody who's got some ability but is going to be a pain, is to promote them and give them a, a serious job and responsibility. So that's what he did, and he asked me to take on the issues around local government and at the time that was really controversial because the government had in, of the day had introduced something called the poll tax mm. which was highly uh, controversial uh, very very difficult for the conservative government and of course was part of the reason why margaret thatcher was pushed out by her own party and they immediately abolished the poll tax 
uh, introduced the council tax and won the following election. Absolutely, and you've been present for a lot of those historic moments, which I really want to get onto and talk about today. But before we do, I suppose I was really interested to know what shaped your politics. What you know, some people said it was their parents or their upbringing or some particular writing that they discovered at university. Or what? What was it for you that really shaped the politics you hold? It was a combination of my own personal circumstances and a, a teacher who was really, really interested in history uh-huh. and got me to read and understand the struggle and the challenges that had come over the last 150 years in terms of making real progress and changing the world for the better and that politics could, at its best, do that. It was a vehicle for making a difference to people. The The, the family thing was fairly self-evident, really. I mean, my... Um, my dad was killed in a works accident when I was 12. My mum had a major battle for any kind of compensation because he'd stayed on over retirement age because there was a fixed retirement age of 65 in those days mm-hmm. um, to train other people. And although it was a nationalised industry in those days, the gas industry, um, they, they were trying to stop compensation. And then my grandfather died a couple of years later in a horrendous accident in a geriatric unit and I've just felt I've got to make this world a better place. I've got to do something about what I feel and experience around me. And people working very hard, having jobs in those days, so people had a job, working hard with real skill, getting paid quite low wages and having a struggle. And that's that's where I came from. And that's what informed my decision to join the Labour Party. And no political party is exactly right for any of us. We, we, we contribute to it. We, we are part of the mix. Uh, but you choose the party that reflects your values most. And mine were about mutuality and reciprocity. I, I realised I would only get anywhere if I worked really hard and it was down to me. But I also realised and, and re- had this reinforced in spades over the years. You really only succeed if other people are prepared to give you a helping hand. That's so interesting to me, and I'll tell you for why. Because I spoke to uh, Diana Davison actually last uh, last week um, for the Yorkshire Post. Who, for listeners that don't know, is um, she's twenty seven. She's newly elected Conservative MP um, in the December election for uh, Bishop Auckland. She's the first Tory MP to ever ever represent a seat. And actually, I think she she was at Hull University, wasn't she? she she's was. had quite an interesting. Um, uh, a few years, yes. one way and another. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And she's um, she's from Sheffield as well. She, yes. um, she grew up yeah. in Sheffield. Yeah. And I think the reason that interests me is because the conversation I had with her actually was almost exactly identical to what you've just said. She had family struggles and that shaped her politics and that really got her into it. I think for so many people, the the personal experience is so much of what, what our politics is, isn't it? Yes, and it's interesting how we can have quite difficult experiences and I know she she had Mm. and come to a different conclusion about which direction (laughs) to go in and that's part of being involved with a democracy that's part of not you know there's there's a a lot of different ways of coming at making a difference to people's lives philosophically she and I would be very different and I'd love to have a a debate with her at some point but old old codgers um, patronizing 
young women in their late 20s is probably not the best idea. <laughs> Maybe we can set that up by the Yorkshire mm. Post, a, uh, a bit mm. of a debate. <laughs> so, but you've had this long career. You've, you know, you were, what, Education Secretary off the back of an election where education, education, education had been promised. You were Home Secretary, weren't you, on, with the September the 11th attacks. When you look back at these massive moments now, what are your reflections on those times? Well, firstly, I was extraordinarily fortunate to be there and to be able to do what I was able to do with the support of a Prime Minister who was wholly committed in both education and employment uh, department and, and at the Home Office. So I had his backing, yeah. which made an enormous difference. Uh, secondly, to have two portfolios, which really did interest me. I mean, education uh, is my first and, and always will be my first policy love. Mm. I mean, I'm still dedicated to it and committed. Yes, you're a lecturer, aren't you? <laughs> I, I, I teach at Sheffield <laughs> University, yeah, amongst other, amongst other things. Um, but also at the Home Office, where I really had seen the worst of the impact of crime and wanted to sort that out. I didn't expect that there would be this major terrorist attack and that the whole of the three and a half years I was in the Home Office would be overshadowed by that, because obviously there were further incidents across the world. We didn't have any in Britain when I was Home Secretary, but we did six months after I left. Mm. Uh, and what I both liked about it and was humbled by was the fact that you were there at the very centre of decision-making. You could change the world for the better, but you also realised the constraints. And I was humbled by the fact that there were people around me who were prepared to give me back. I had a very, very good group of special advisers. My private office in both departments were excellent. I was able to build uh, a really good set of ministerial colleagues. I wasn't good with my cabinet colleagues. I, was, I think I always expected to get my way. And whilst I always would want to, I think I might have approached it with them slightly different. I, I was pretty good at building a team, but I wasn't good at being a team player. And I oh, regret that because I think I might have come out of government uh, with... I've got loads of friends from that era, mm. uh, but I might have come out of government without a, the resentment that I know some of my colleagues felt about this. Um, I, I'll use the word pig-headed guy who would never take no for an answer and always wanted his own way. That's that's some serious self-reflection, though, isn't it? To you know look back at that time and think, Do you know what, I could have done things differently. And I don't think everyone thinks that about their past when they think about it but I suppose you know that's the way that we grow as in our in our jobs and as a, as a parliamentarian now. I Tony, Tony Blair uh, said to me you just get used to and become competent in doing the job when nobody wants you to do it anymore <laughs> which is a bit sad really. It is, it is. Because um, we learn, we yeah. grow, we mature, we we find our feet. This is true in management in in business it's true in the trade unions people are if you don't if you're not learning something new every day then you're not really living yeah no i totally agree i totally agree now, the government we were talking about just then the governments we were talking about just then are very different to the government that we have in this country now i think it's safe to say what what do you make of well it's a year isn't it just just a year since boris johnson's government has been in power what do you make of their first year well, of course, nobody would have wished COVID-19 on them. No. Um, and 
I'm very well aware that many voters, first-time voters, Conservative, uh, in December uh, 19, actually still are giving them the benefit of the doubt, partly because you would, if you voted a particular way, you don't want a year on to say, I, I think I made a mistake. And, yeah. and given the state of the Labour Party at the time, you, you, you know, I, it's hard to be brutally critical of that. Um, but I think that what happened was that the government got an enormous upsurge of support and sympathy in, in uh, April, May, because of the enormity of what they're facing. My, my criticism is not that they've they've made mistakes because any government in this circumstance would have made mistakes. It's that actually they've forgotten that they govern for Britain. So there's been far too many appointments, far too many contracts for supply of equipment, far too much nepotism and cronyism. And that comes home to bite you. you you've got to broaden the scope of not only who you draw in and listen to, but also in terms of public probity and you know, a functioning democracy, you've got to really watch that you don't simply reward your friends. That's not how we function. And, and to be, you know, listeners and, and uh, those reading my words might say, well, what did you do? Well, I did actually reach out. I appointed the first uh, uh, counter-terrorism commissioner was a Liberal Democrat who... Uh, understood where I was coming from but I wanted someone in that role who could challenge because mm -hmm. Home Secretaries need that challenge. I appointed a former Conservative Cabinet Minister to uh, oversee funding for further education. So I, I was trying to look for talent and for people who were the right fit for the job rather than they fitted uh, my party and my philosophy in a, in, a, in a purely party political sense. So we, we've got to get back to that. Secondly, the problem, I think, for the government, and uh, by the time people listen to this, we'll know what's happened in terms of the end of the transition period mm. for the withdrawal from the European Union, um, is that the whole cabinet and very many of the ministerial posts were appointed because they were Brexiteers, because they played the game with Boris. It was, for understandable reasons, a signal that they were going to do what Boris said, get Brexit done. But they were very intolerant of people who'd had a different point of view and a disagreement. And I think in any reshuffle, they'll have to think that through because you can only alienate part, part of your party for so long and you can only dismiss talent for so long without the crack showing. Mm. And I wonder if that's... If that's something that's kind of changed, because you like, like you know, we keep saying you've had this long, illustrious political career. Has is that a symptom of a change in politics in this country? Do you think? I mean, you know, people suggested that um, what, what did uh, what did they call uh, Boris Britain Trump and things like that? Is has there been a change in politics in general in the country that's necessitated this? Well, it's not just in our country. I mean that pop that. Uh, I mean, I I'm all in favour of people being popular. Mm. <laughs> but popularism in the Trump uh, sense, in what's happened in Brazil, what's happened in Hungary as well as here, mm. uh, that narrow focus on a very, very rigid um, view of the world is, is, in my view, both uh, unnecessary and dangerous. And 
we, we may get away from this now with Biden taking over in the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there may be a change. I, I've got to be optimistic, although I, I think that those who are Pollyanna-ish and think that what's happened with COVID is going to change the world for the better, I, I fear not. I think we're going to have to continue struggling for a better world. Um, I, I think that the, the difficulty for, for Boris is that he's an excellent campaigner. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we saw that in the referendum. And the referendum was a seminal moment. It was, the, the country was split down the middle and in the end, sufficient voted to out. Much to, I think, the surprise of Boris and Michael Gove and the people who were at the forefront of the, of the uh, out campaign, but didn't really expect to win. And I think that rehealing the country will be really important, not least because we've got the other thing on the horizon, which is the split of the... United Kingdom, the, mm. the danger of Scotland pressing and pressing until they get another referendum on independence. And so to be out of the European Union, to be in danger of the Union within the UK disintegrating, to have the aftermath of COVID and the enormous damage to the economy that's done really isn't a good backcloth for healing for what is being described as levelling up when under COVID, and I fear in the months ahead because of the dual economic hit of the, the pandemic and the, uh, and the withdrawal from Europe, we are going to see levelling down rather than levelling up. And in the end, that leads to resentment and to bitterness and alienation. And we've had enough of that. I'm so glad that you mentioned levelling up, which is not a phrase I say often, if I'm honest, because um, mm. it's, it's all I seem to write about. But you're quite right in that we've got divisions in the union, divisions because of Brexit, but we do also have these massive regional inequalities in this country. I know it's something that you write for us a lot about, actually, at the Yorkshire Post, and something that you speak about a lot. But is this, is this old news? Is the, the regional divide something that you were talking about when you were in government, or has this only really been focused on in recent years? No, it's it's been with us for a very long time. The collapse of steel engineering and mining in terms of the number of jobs in the late 70s early and particularly through the 1980s mm. 50,000 jobs in steel and engineering alone went in Sheffield in the first three years I was leader of the council they, they were high quality craft jobs they were jobs with a status um, they affected the community those who saw the full Monty got uh, a, a sort of distorted picture of that I mean I, I didn't apart from a couple of clever northern jokes I, I didn't find the full Monty all that funny actually because it did reflect a complete rift cultural and in terms of family and all kinds of things but it was one of those moments in time where that that historic motor of the north of England with all the manufacturing that had sustained us through the second world war and beyond was disintegrating, uh, partly because of new technology, partly because of, te of competition, partly because of ideology in terms of government support for gradual change, and partly because management and unions just had standoffs rather than coming together in the way that had been apparent in Germany. So there were a whole range of things there, and that, I think, that legacy rode 
all the way through to the global meltdown in 2008. It was global. I mean, people now recognise that and the government's borrowing, which is four times the borrowing that Gordon Brown had to do to save the, the finance and banking system. Um, that that uh, need to, to intervene in that way was badly presented by us, that's the Labour Party in government, mm. completely misunderstood in terms of what would have happened if we hadn't, and trashed by our opposition, who have now usefully forgotten uh, what they were saying at the time about the role of government and about borrowing. Well, thankfully, we can borrow at a very low level, but, of course, the double hit of the manufacturing collapse of, and the massive change in, in traditional heavy industry, plus the impact of the uh, global meltdown and the austerity measures that followed, all impacted on the same people. And so when we got to the referendum in 2016, it's not surprising that people felt both left out, left behind and alienated because they and their families had had a dose of it. Now, my defence of our government was you just needed to take a look after, certainly after the first 10 years, mm -hmm. at the change in everything around you. I had a councillor who's a friend who stood in a local park in my constituency and looked round and listed, wrote down all the things that had changed, the houses that had been refurbished, the environment of the park and its surroundings that had been improved, the sixth form college that had been built, a school nearby that had been completely refurbished. Uh, she went on to say, here's a sure start project that we've started with a new nursery, um, that you can see the trees that have been planted, not to mention the hospital, which was about half a mile away, which had had millions pumped into it, and the local health centre that had been rebuilt, uh, and the national minimum wage, and I could go on. And so there was a visible change in my constituency. Now, that, if that didn't happen, and clearly it didn't in some parts of the north of England, where dereliction and historical um, left-behind feeling mm. existed, then we, we, we stand condemned by that because we should have not just the infrastructure, it's not just about bricks and mortar and whether the town centre's falling apart because some of that was changing retail and habits and all kinds of things, uh, the way people ha lived their lives and their leisure. But we should have worked through with those people. We had projects, New Deal for Communities, all kinds of schemes. They tended to be done top-down rather than bottom-up. Mm -hmm. And I used to rail about this even at the time and say, have we not learned anything from community development in the 1970s that if you don't do things with people, firstly, they don't think it's anything to do with them. And secondly, it won't last. We, we, we had a, a council estate in Sheffield, a uh, high rise. We pumped millions into it um, uh, after I'd left the leadership. Mm -hmm. And it was physically improved. But it hadn't been done alongside and with people. And after about 10 years, it was virtually back where it started. So you've got to work with people and not just with bricks. You've got to take them along with yeah. you. Absolutely, absolutely. And the reason, the reason I asked that question, actually, is because I was speaking to um, former Don Valley MP Caroline Flint a couple of weeks ago, and she said that from her time, you know, when she was first elected with, 
with um, Penny Blair's government and your government, um, that she doesn't remember speaking in such detail, maybe, about the, the idea of uh, kind of narrowing these regional divides. That it was it was always something that's spoken about, but there was she does now feel like it's across government. Um, and I suppose that does have to be welcomed in a way, but we need to see the proof in the pudding, don't yes, we? Yes, I mean, it came, as these things do, from uh, in, uh, electoral imperative. Yes. What, why, why did Margaret Thatcher suddenly, in the, in the late 1980s, become interested in climate and green issues? Mm. Because the Green Party got 14% of the popular vote in the European election, 14%, which was unprecedented. There was a political imperative as well as an interest. Uh, in, in, our, in the Conservatives' terms, cleverly, quite rightly, they spotted there were disaffected voters because of Brexit and the aftermath and what had happened in the four years and said, you know, we recognise... Uh, historically, that we've neglect we've neglected you, and that Labour neglected you. That was the that was the play, and it played very cleverly. And people said, okay, we we've got Jeremy Corbyn as the alternative leader of the country, uh, and we're fed up with what's been going on. We'll not only give Labour a bloody nose, but we'll give you a chance. And I know because I've spoken to them of people who went into the polling booth in Yorkshire and in Nottinghamshire, and cried when they put their cross for the Conservative candidate. Now, wow. that, that's our fault. To make people cry when they vote against you is an indictment of the political party that I love and have been a member of for over 55 years. So, you know, we've got to look at ourselves and the metropolitan nature of our party. I mean, all the all our opponents in government are metropolitan. I mean, they, they just are. You know, you, you've got several people who went, including Boris, who, who went to Eton, for God's sake. But it's, it's how people feel and think, and they expect more of us than they do of the Conservatives. That's why all these crony contracts, people are almost ignoring, I feel. And they're saying, well, you know, what else do you expect? Well... <laughs> That's an awful thing to overcome, and they, they expect more of us, and actually they should, because we claim to be rooted in those communities. We claim that we come from and represent those communities, and we keep on saying we do, and they've, they've got to feel that we do. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. And you touched on something there that I wanted to come on to as well, which is the Labour Party now, your party, that you know, you're clearly so so rooted in. Do you think there's been a recovery since that election? And what do you think maybe that Kistamish can, can kind of do next to keep rebuilding that? Oh, there's no doubt whatsoever that there's been a recovery of both uh, standing and competence and electability, but it's the very beginning of a process. Mm -hmm. um, there was a rogue, in, in my view, it was a rogue poll that showed that the so-called red wall seats had started to swing back to Labour, yes, I, I think it was a rogue poll. I have no feel in people I meet and talk to and listen to and in the vox pops that are done that people have substantially changed. They've, they're prepared now to give us the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> they respect that we've got a highly competent, intelligent, thoughtful leader that doesn't frighten them. Mm -hmm. But I think we're a long way off having won them back. We need 
and I've written about this, we need definition so that people know what we stand for. We need to be able to communicate, not from metropolitan London, but in a way that relates to their lives and understands where they're at and what, how they feel. Uh, and when we do that, and we build both the programme and policy on the one hand, underpinned by our values, and we communicate in an understandable way, then people will return to us. I'm convinced we can do it, but it is going, it's a mountain to climb. I mean, you know, we have to win. I, it, it's, it's a staggering number of seats. We have to win 160 seats to get a majority of one. I mean, people have just not quite clocked that. It is absolutely enormous, the yeah. challenge. I, I think we can do it, but it's going to take a long time. And there will be a bounce on the back of the vaccine for the government. There's no question about that. People... One thing I keep saying to, to colleagues and have said for years, don't fight the last election because people aren't looking backwards. They look forwards. They want to know what tomorrow is going to bring. They want hope. They want aspiration. They want something better. And on the back of the vaccine, and the economy will gradually start to recover and jobs will come back, the feel-good factor will come back. And the government have got another four years. So, you know, hold your breath. This is going to be a major struggle. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that kind of covers a lot of what I wanted to talk about today, but it's really, really interesting to get to get those insights. I've got a couple of quick-fire ones for Run. you before we end, if that's okay. HS2, yes or no? Yes, reluctantly. I'm not a fan of HS2, and I would have spent the money in a different way. But it's happening now between London and Birmingham. It's going to happen between Birmingham crew... Manchester and if we're not careful there'll be an HS3 link to Leeds and the whole East Midlands and Yorkshire link which will then feed into the uh, East Coast main line and through to Newcastle and beyond all of that I think is at risk and there's a real danger that that phase will be dropped and if anybody thinks that the communities that are left behind on the east of the Pennines are going to get the money that would have gone into HS2 they're living in cloud cuckoo land. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Next one is, you've uh, campaigned for, said you've got a Yorkshire Parliament in the past. Is that still something you'd like to see? Not, not really. I had a little <laughs> go back in 2005. I was talking really about the English question, uh -huh. how devolution had empowered Scotland and Wales and uh, once there was a settlement in Northern Ireland. But that we felt, and I, I still feel, that the regions are very much second thought. And, you know, London and the South East is currently... The motor, the, the level of uh, growth, the level of GDP, uh, the high-tech industries. And we've got to do something, as we were saying earlier, we've got to do something about that. Uh, and therefore, it links in with both investment and with enterprise and innovation. Mm -hmm. we, it can't be done to us. We, we've got to take this challenge on. I think our universities, our colleges, our councils have got to build the confidence and the networks to be an absolutely fundamental part of this regeneration and so there's no nobody on a white charger boris or anybody else we're going to have to look to ourselves to do it we expect government to support and we must demand that together and i hope that whatever political party at council level or as mps or as elected mayors we should do that together because it's far, far more important than what divides us. 
Absolutely. And the final one, you said earlier that Home Secretaries need their challenge. Now, those challenges our current Home Secretary seem to have uh, shouted and sworn at in their own department. You, of course, did resign at, at one point from your ministerial position, so should Pretty Patel have resigned? Well, I, I resigned because of my personal life yeah. and the, the difficulties that had arisen there. I, I think that it's extraordinary that the Commissioner overseeing conduct, uh, Alex Allen, should resign but not the person whose conduct he'd investigated. We are in extraordinary times. We are, we are. We'll leave it there, David. Thank, Thank you so you. much for coming on. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for listening to Pod's Own Country, the Yorkshire Post political podcast. I've been Jerry Scott, the Yorkshire Post Westminster correspondent. And you know what? It would really, really help us if you could find us on whichever platform you use for your podcast, whether that's Apple Podcasts, whether that's Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify. And if you could leave us a review and uh, give us a rating, a star rating, hopefully five stars, but we'll take four as well. That really, really helps boost us in the charts. And it means that we can keep bringing you exciting guests every week to give you a glimpse into uh, life in Westminster. So it would be really helpful if you could do that. And we will be back next week. This weekend at Augusta, it's the Masters. And with 50% off a Now Sports membership, you can catch every, 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 and every. Watch all four days of the Masters live with 50% off a Now Sports membership for three months, bringing you all 11 Sky Sports channels. Join in at nowtv.com. 18 plus, streamed via internet, offer ends 2nd of May, standard pricing after three months.